Blake Osler. Welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Yeah, if I were any better, I'd be twins. Good. Glad to have you on. Appreciate uh, you taking some time uh, to spend with us. I I know that uh, almost everybody in Mormonism, I think, knows who Blake Osler is. But but just for uh, for giggles, would you mind just sharing maybe a brief bio about yourself for those who perhaps are unfamiliar with uh, who you are? Well, I uh, have taught philosophy as an adjunct teacher in at, from time to time at BYU. I've taught classes up at Utah State University and uh, been at many universities lecturing. Um, but I'm a full-time attorney, and uh, up until just a few months ago, I was also uh, teaching English to immigrants uh, about 20 hours a week. So I've had a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think most Mormons are going to be familiar with a lot of the philosophical things that you have You've done within Mormonism uh, specifically. I know I've I've heard you several times talk about uh, the atonement and how you would define that and and how you've worked that out. I uh, I want to ask you in the sense if maybe as a young adult growing up in the church, if there's anything of note, uh, maybe on your mission or in college or as a as a teenager that you think would be uh, pertinent to us as we have a discussion about uh, issues of faith and and kind of faith development. Well, I was the same age as Joseph Smith when I gained my testimony. Um, it was a very earnest and intentional search on my part. I've uh, written about it in a couple of places. You can find um, my conversion story on Scholars That Testify, the site that Dan Peterson created, or also on my website, BlakeOsler.com. Um, and there I recount, I'll, I'll just you know, very briefly say that I watched the uh, classic show about Brigham Young that had Dean Jagger in it and Tyrone Power and <laughs> um, Price's uh, Joseph Smith. I, it's a great movie. At the end, uh, J- Brigham Young is having a faith crisis because he doesn't believe he's really a prophet. And I figured if Brigham Young didn't think he was a prophet, then he wasn't a prophet. And I wanted to find out about that. So I asked my mother where to go, and she told me to read the Doctrine and Covenants to find about all about Brigham Young. Um, I found out my brother or my mother didn't know much about Brigham Young, but I figured the same process would probably work for Joseph Smith regardless. And so I took 10 chapters a day and uh, I remember very firmly coming to the conclusion that there was no way for me to know um, based upon the fact that Joseph Smith died and he took whatever knowledge he had with him to the grave. But about uh, as I read, I was probably somewhere around the, the 70s or 80s in the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants when uh, I had a very profound answer to my prayers. And uh, I knew that I had received an answer to my prayer. It wasn't, it wasn't wishy-washy. Oh, I wonder if that's the answer. I knew it was the answer. And my heart was changed. Um, I thereafter was quickly tested. I did a paper... Um, in a class, I was going to disprove the theory of evolution, and I picked up um, Joseph Fielding Smith's Man as Origin and Destiny as one of the sources and very quickly discovered that Joseph Fielding Smith knew very little about biology, archaeology, paleontology, and had no business writing a book about evolution. <laughs> um, and it was somewhat of a crisis for me because I didn't know how to resolve um, I became a thorough and, and uh, complete believer in evolution because it explained so much for me. I ended up writing a paper on the cranial evolution of hominids, um, which, interestingly enough, the, the thesis that I, I adopted uh, won a, an award for the science paper of the year. I was only a freshman at the time. Um, but I 
in essence, uh, um, a Gould, I don't remember his first name, he was a professor at Harvard, picked up the same thesis that I did um, a couple of years later. So I was ahead of the curve in determining that dendrite morphology in, in the um, cranial um, casts of, or endocasts of, of the fossils was a better indicator of, of human intelligence than, than cranial size. Not that that has anything to do with Mormonism, but it shows you how thoroughly I had I had studied evolution. Um, I didn't have anybody to talk to at that point about evolution. I had to work it through on my own. And about that same time, I also ran into all of the Tanner stuff and read it thoroughly. And so I was working through um, literally all alone, and, and this would have been clear back in 1973. So this is long before there was a fair or there was a farms or anything to assist me to work through those issues. When I got to the book of Abraham, I read all of the Improvement Era articles by B.H. Roberts and Hugh Nibley and um, became thoroughly familiar with that. I bought all of Nibley's books since Camorra, um, you name it, I, I read it. And uh, so I, I became um, kind of a, a self-sufficient searcher to review the issues that I ran across to see how... I mean, my dilemma was I, I knew it was true. I knew I'd received an answer. The question for me, it wasn't always how could that possibly be true, but um, at times it was how could that possibly, how could Mormonism possibly be true given what I know? Um, but having had spiritual experiences, I, I knew what I knew. And and so for me, the, the quest was how can I make sense of this, maintain my integrity, and be true to my heart and, and, and mind in moving forward, and so I I continued to search. Um, I went on a mission to Milan, Italy. Um, while I was on my mission, I ran into um, um, a French publication, Revue de la Bible, which was a very um, scholarly approach to the Bible. They had, uh, how do you say that in English, fascicles, and it's kind of the closest that I come up with the French fascicle. Um, and so I read you know, all, uh, all kinds of things and, and became very familiar with critical biblical scholarship um, while I was studying the scriptures. I got permission from my mission president to read that kind of stuff in connection with my, my scriptural study. So um, by the time I I came back and, and went back to BYU, um, I was thirsty. BYU was a perfect fit for me. I loved every second of it at BYU. It was a fabulous experience. I, I went to every single um, devotional, went to every single um, thing that I could. Um, Truman Madsen was there at the time and kind of became a mentor for me. And shortly thereafter, David Polson became a mentor for me. And I became thoroughly fascinated with the philosophy of religion because I realized that there were, especially in the um, Anglo-American tradition, because there was a great deal of very high-quality work being done in the analytic tradition. And so I, I just immersed myself and loved every second of it. I still love every second of it. And I have a, a wide range of philosophical interests. A lot of my interests, I also have a, in addition to a degree in philosophy, I have a degree in, in uh, what we now call neurophysiology or psychobiology. I was primarily interested in the mind-body problem or the relationship between mind, free will, moral responsibility, um, you know, those kinds of issues, and, and I continue to study those. I, I spend several hours every day looking at those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've done everything I can to 
uh, immerse myself into the study of, of the gospel and the philosophical issues that fascinate me. And I remain a, a very committed believer. Um, but I would say that my the way I look at things is I, I've always been a bit different in the way I look at things. And it doesn't bother me that I am. Everybody's at a different point, And I'm fine with people disagreeing with me. And I'm fine with, with having kind of a different take on things. Because um, I discovered very early that, you know, I, I knew things that none of my bishops or state presidents had any clue about. And so I was going to have to make my own way in terms of of assessing and the, and kind of figuring out, uh, you know, what I believed about it after thoroughly reviewing and immersing myself in study. Does that give you an idea? <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and I, as I listen to that, my heart somewhat goes out to you because to kind of blaze that trail without – Having, even if it's an online community or having a mentor in your ward or somebody that you can just kind of, you know, they can put their arm around you and say, Hey, I've, I've understand those things too. Yeah. I've read those same things without having that. It, that's a heck of a, a path to walk down without anybody to kind of console you and kind of share insights with you. Um, I felt lonely at times, but mostly I was, uh, you know, it didn't bother me that much. Um, I felt, you know, fairly, at ease being self-sufficient in terms of those kind of things. I mean, anybody who studies philosophy is going to be into all kinds of questions that nobody else asks. And so um, it's kind of the nature of the study. I'm, I'm you know, every place, the, the kind of things, how can I really, you know, discuss um, Luis de Molina and his 16th century work or, or um, uh, Suarez, uh, you know, and how many people do you know have read the Summa Theologica or the Summa Contra Gentiles in Latin? I mean... You know, those are the kinds of things that fascinate me, and and I'm probably the only person you'll ever meet that has enough fascination to actually read it in Latin. So, right, um, right. I'm, I'm I'm happy being kind of one of a kind. <laughs> and that's good. And I want to kind of delve into some questions that get that one of a kind take. the uh, The first thing I want to ask you about: you did some work with a, a project uh, titled "Exploring Mormon Thought," and one of the things that you talk about in there is this idea of Heavenly Father. Or the Godhead not being aware of future acts in regards to how we, as their children, as Heavenly Father's children, use our agency. In other words, you've kind of put across this idea that I don't, I've never heard anywhere else in Mormonism, which is that Heavenly Father, in allowing us to use our agency, does not know what the next thing we're going to do with it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm far from unique in that respect. There are a number of, of Latter-day Saints who've been willing to discuss um, God's limited foreknowledge, including Witsow and, and B.H. Roberts. Um, I discussed the idea in a personal meeting with Neil Maxwell, and he'd had one view before our, our meeting. And after I provided him some materials and a couple of arguments that I'd kind of generated myself, um, he was open. I mean, he told me flat out that he was open to changing his mind about that issue and wanted to just keep open on it. So I became convinced because I was looking at it. I I always had kind of this intuitive sense that if the future is fixed and already decided before I can decide anything about it, I, I don't know how I can make a decision that requires me to choose among all open alternatives. And I adopt a view of libertarian free will because I think it's really the only notion of free will that makes any sense of the idea of free will. I'm not a determinist. I'm not a compatibilist. Um, I'm, I'm a libertarian and I have a fairly sophisticated um, view of free will and, and also a very sophisticated neurobiological view of the relationship between um, mind and body, um, you know, and how our, our 
mind and, and choices relate to the physiological chemical processes in our brain. Um, and, you know, essentially I'm a non-reductivist and believe in, a, in an emergent reality, which is over and above the material substrate that is our brain. Um, to get into it, it would be a very long discussion, and I'm afraid very complicated one. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to lose me probably pretty quick. <laughs> I, I do want to ask you though, in terms of this idea of Heavenly Father's limited foreknowledge, this would, in a way, and again, I'm I'm out of my league here, but this would, in a way, in my mind, make Heavenly Father less apt to be proactive on things uh, in terms of helping out his children, and more of being reactive. And maybe talk for a moment about how that would fit in with uh, with heavenly father's children and how some maybe get answers and some don't or or miracles happen to a select few but but great miracles maybe don't happen in the lives of every single person that are that are obvious and apparent and maybe how that ties into this limited foreknowledge on God's part sure first let me make it very clear that the notion that God has foreknowledge is actually the most limiting view and that here's why take a common example of a of a woman who wants to know who she should marry whether she should marry John or Joe and uh, so she asks Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Father knows she's going to marry John, and, and she's going to be miserable. Um, you know, and so the question then arises, she prays, and she asks, what would it be like if I married Joe? And Heavenly Father says, well, I don't know. I haven't foreseen that. That doesn't occur. I just know you married John, and you're going to be miserable. Could Heavenly Father change it after he's seen it? And the answer is no, he can't. He's seen that it's going to be the case before he could deliberate about it. Did Heavenly Father have anything in assisting or choosing that she would marry John? And the answer is no, <laughs> because he foresaw it before he could make any decisions about it. I give this argument in the first volume of Exploring Mormon Thought. And so it's a very limiting view. It's, it, it renders God essentially impotent because everything is already decided before he can assess any information and make an intelligent decision about it. Um, what the view of the open future does is it means that God becomes um, essentially a co-creator with us, that we're creating a future that um, we both have a hand in creating. Importantly, as well as that God knows all future possibilities and the probability, if there's a probability to be attached to events, then he knows what the present probability of that event occurring would be. So let me give a, a kind of a, another analogy, which is a chess player analogy. God does not know exactly which moves his opponent will make. But God is an omniscient chess player. It doesn't matter what moves are made. He's capable of thoroughly decimating his opponent and winning the game, probably in only three or four moves every time. <laughs> so it's not a worry that God is going to, or that his plan will not be realized. God has a plan and has a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. And you can see it in our lives. I mean, God's plan is to save all humankind if they're willing to come to him. Um, and what if they won't all come to him? Well, then he plans to send a savior to take care of those who won't freely choose to come to him, but who need to repent later on. Well, what if there are some who won't repent? Well, he's got a plan C and, and so forth. And, and for each of us in our lives, there, you know, there, it's a, an interpersonal, interactive, very hands-on kind of relationship. Um, where God is working with us to fashion our future and the future of the world. And so um, is is God sure to win out? The answer is yes, God is sure to win out, but we may not be. It's really possible for us to fail to fully 
um, realize our, our potential. It's possible for us to fail to choose what's best for us. It's possible that we're going to cause God pain and cause him to weep. Um, and so the, the view of God, in my view, makes God much more personal and interpersonal, makes him much more of a thou than the kind of absolute it that I think exists in the classic view of God. That is the traditional view that would be held by um, what would have been most theologians prior to about the 18th century in the Catholic and Protestant traditions. So um, that that's my view of it. Awesome. And I appreciate that. And I, and I like... I like the depth to that, and I think as we kind of plug along, it really gets me kind of excited about some of these other questions that I want to throw out at you. The The next one I want to ask about is the Book of Mormon, and and I know that you've done some discussion before on, uh, I think I read or listened to an MP3 file of a, a conversation you were having about the Book of Mormon, but I, I want to just ask you, in terms of historicity and realizing, obviously, as you do, that there are anachronisms, there are problems with the Book of Mormon, at the same time, there's evidences of it, whether it, we're talking about uh, this whole travel down the, the coast uh, and then over to Bountiful and some of the geographic things that match up. If we're talking about some of the other things, whether it be writing on gold plates or uh, the Book of Mormon Witnesses, for that matter, that there's evidence on both sides and that the critics try to paint it as a obviously a non-historical work. And conservative Mormons kind of hold this view that everything that's in there is absolutely God's word. Where do you kind of come down on reconciling the Book of Mormon, and how do you see the that work of Scripture? Well, I've written an article um, on the Book of Mormon as a modern expansion of an ancient source, and that is still my view. It, it uh, by far and away, I think, is the most adequate view to explain all of the evidence. I get a bit upset with those who say there's no evidence for the antiquity of the Book of Mormon. The answer is that there's a great deal of evidence for the antiquity of the Book of Mormon. Um, in my article, I point to form critical studies. These are the kinds of, of studies that critical biblical scholars adopt. Um, First Nephi is a perfect example of a prophetic call narrative, which is a fairly sophisticated narrative with specific elements. Um, there are at least three um, covenant renewal festivals in the Book of Mormon. There are at least four prophetic lawsuits, which have a, a very strict literary form, but you could ask virtually anyone that you know who's read the Bible a lot, what is the form of the rib? Or the rib is the Hebrew name for a, law, a Hebrew lawsuit, and how a Hebrew lawsuit has been been brought and prosecuted. They're not going to have a clue. And expecting that Joseph Smith is going to know that kind of stuff, uh, you know, with the explanation, oh, that's just the kind of thing that people come up with if they read the Bible enough. I just find that kind of response to be ludicrous. I've never found it to be even remotely satisfying as a response. However, as you say, there's also very clear indications of that Joseph Smith um, relied on modern sources and at times expostulated in explaining um, what he found in the text from a modern standpoint. Um, so, for instance, when he just plugs in chapters 2 through 14 of Isaiah and 2 Nephi, um, it's very clear that his base text is is the King James Bible that didn't exist, wasn't available to any Nephites, and at times the text that he's explaining is not an ancient text, it is the King James Version, because the kinds of explanations he gives are found only in the King James Version, and the problems that he's resolving are found only in the King James Version. So the question is, what kind of a theory is adequate to explain all of the evidence that we find about the Book of Mormon? And it's one that requires that Joseph Smith is translating at times, maybe he's translating very close to the plates. At times, he's translating more loosely. 
but to use the word translate is a misnomer. Joseph Smith did not know ancient language languages when he um, translated, and it's obvious from the fact that he later attempted to study those very ancient languages because he didn't know them. So Joseph Smith is receiving the Book of Mormon through revelation, um, through several different means. Um, I'm not set on any geography, um, and, and I'm still in the question. Jacob in, in Second Nephi affirms that... Uh, the Book of Mormon, at least where they were, they were on an isle of the sea. Um, he's, and he says it twice, and I'm not quite sure what that means. Some people have suggested that the Hebrew term for for an island is the same as the, the term for the um, area of land that is close to the sea, um, a beach and then miles in, say. I'm, so I'm just open. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure we haven't found anything in the, in the Americas that can be definitely related to the Book of Mormon, which is somewhat of a challenge to faith. But then I've never been under the illusion that the Nephite culture was one that would actually survive in the areas of the world where it's likely to have occurred. Um, it's one thing to find. We've only found one partially preserved sword from the 5th century, for instance, in, in uh the areas around Jerusalem and the and uh, the old world, and it's, it, that's a very dry place where things are, are, you know, incredibly more likely, infinitely more likely to be preserved than in the kinds of of climate, the humidity, um, and, and the the simple kinds of of rates of destruction by rust and so forth that we would um, find in the New World anywhere, essentially except for certain areas of, of the Sonoran Desert and other areas that may be dry, but, you know, that's not likely where the Book of Mormon takes place. It's obvious to me, beyond, beyond obvious to me, that any kind of hemispheric model of the Book of Mormon is ludicrous. It's contrary to the text of the Book of Mormon itself. I mean, the, the Nephites could walk across the entire area in 20 days, and, and the, the vast majority of it they could cover in, in five to six days. So we're not talk we're talking about an area about the size of Palestine is what we're talking about. And so, you know, I I just don't find it credible anybody who takes seriously a, a hemispheric model. Um and, and you know, I I really don't care what previous Mormons have, have speculated where the Book of Mormon might be. I don't find that they have any prophetic authority, so it doesn't bother me that they speculated about other places where the Book of Mormon could have occurred. The primary task is to is to determine from the text itself what's plausible, and um, I think you know I, I've read all of the stuff that John Swornson has written. John Swornson is, is a good friend of mine, by the way. He was the high counselor in my ward when I was at BYU, and we were very good friends and continue to be. A, I, and I have a great deal of respect for him, but I don't have the expertise really to assess the evidence in a new world setting. Um, I'm like everybody else, kind of a learned amateur. And my view is that there's still vast amounts that we have no clue about when it comes to New World archaeology, or anthropology for that matter. Yeah, and so when the critics try to say that either Joseph's using a, a tight translation or he's using a loose translation, you would just take that off the table completely and say he's, he's probably using both. Yeah, I would, I would say let's look at what the evidence indicates, because Joseph Smith is receiving the text through Revelation, and how tight it's going to fit to the text is not based upon his knowledge of the language. I've never taken, David Whitmer was not in a position to tell us about, for instance, what you could call the dictaphone theory where the words appeared in his seer stone. You know, David Whitmer 
never looked in the stone. He wasn't really in a position to know and, and yet was willing to spout off and give all kinds of opinions about how it definitely had to occur. But, but he had a very, very tight notion. I mean, he was essentially a fundamentalist when it came to scripture. And so that fit his theory of scripture. Um, I find it much more likely that, um, it's what we find in the DNC and that's that Joseph Smith and, and I have some sense for what this is. I've experienced it myself. He would sit down and he would have a sense of pure knowledge flowing into him. And and he would know what the text was. The feat that he pulled off translating this kind of a text, and, and again, the word translate is, is misleading. This kind of revelation that gives us this text of the Book of Mormon in the short period of time that he created it is an astounding feat. And anybody who overlooks that, I think, is... Is, you know, it's not, it's not impossible these things occur. I mean, Handel, you know, did the Messiah in a very short period of time as well. It's not impossible that those periods of creativity exist. But, but it's at least some indication that he's really, he's doing something really, truly remarkable. Um, and so the way I look at the Book of Mormon is that, uh, I'll go where the evidence leads me. And in my assessment of the evidence, there are very clear indications of antiquity that have to be accounted for. And so far, you know, um, Brother Brandt has a very, has a theory of, of the Book of Mormon that's very close to mine. Um, just, I'm not sure we're very different in the way that we look at it. And I think that anybody who's going to look at the evidence, um, and, and not already have a closed mind to the possibility of antiquity of the Book of Mormon and actually have a background to be able to assess the evidence is going to come to the same conclusion. I get, I admit to being frustrated with people who come to a conclusion about the Book of Mormon who know nothing about antiquity, who know nothing about um, Hebrew literary forms, who know nothing about um, critical biblical scholarship, who know nothing about the, the um, areas that they, they all of a sudden have some definitive opinion on and pretend to know all about when it's very clear that they're, they're just um, meddling amateurs without any real basis for assessing the evidence, and yet they're willing to throw out their entire faith based on something they have no ability to assess. Um, and I think it calls for a great deal of humility on our part in areas and, and a recognition that there are just areas where we're not qualified to assess the evidence. Um, we do have to rely on experts there, but I take the experts with a grain of salt. If the experts took seriously the Book of Mormon, they, they'd probably already be Mormon. So, um, you know, the, the bottom line is is I've done my best to honestly assess the evidence and come up with, with the way of accounting for it, all of the evidence, not just some of it. Excellent. I uh, I want to get away, I guess, from you know the the historical scripture that we use for just a moment. I do want to come back to how you define scripture later on, but I want to ask you a little bit about how you reconcile issues within Mormonism. And I'll give an example. And and I I could be way off base in in throwing this one out there, but it's what crosses my mind. So when the the recent essay started coming out, one of the first ones that came out was the race and priesthood essay, which. At the very end, towards the end, and, and, and I'm ignoring the ban, the priesthood ban itself for a moment, but rather the theories that we gave to kind of formulate why the ban was in place. And, and so we would say that, you know, for instance, blacks were less valiant in the pre-mortal life. They had the curse of Cain. And this essay comes out and it essentially says that those are now disavowed theories. The problem is that going back into the beginning of this issue, we have the general authorities really as a whole – uh, 1949 first presidency letter, a correspondence with the first presidency with a, a Dr. Uh, Lowry Nelson. And they're teaching this idea that those theories at the time in the 1940s were doctrine. They were a commonly held doctrine in the church as a whole and not just by a leader or two. 
And and then you have you know Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson who have come out and tried to define doctrine as those things that not just that one person says off in a corner, but those things that all fifteen men teach unitedly, and that our doctrine is not hard to find. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot in the sense of you know pitting you against what a leader's saying, but rather how do you reconcile in Mormonism this idea of being led by prophets, seers, and revelators? These prophets, seers, and revelators asking us to follow them, asking us to trust in them, and yet at the same time there are examples of paradox and contradictions where for those of us who are struggling with faith, we look at how all these things happen and we say this is a crapshoot to follow or not to follow on any time they say something, and, and how, do, how, do you, how do you wend your way through all of that? Well, I would suggest that we become familiar with the notion of a cultural overbelief, that is something that is an ad hoc explanation to fill a vacuum where there really isn't much to fill in the blanks um, and recognize that where we have such cultural overbeliefs that that's exactly what they are. Um, doctrine, you know, there really is no doctrine in the sense that um, there is some truth that we fully understand and we can we can articulate it in, in its full depth and clarity. There just is no such truth. And, and in fact, the more profound the truth, the more the, any explanation we give would be incomplete. So I take with a grain of salt these kinds of attempts to fully explain anything um, and more to assess the fact that, that um, we have epistemic limitations as human beings. There's just a lot that we, we not only don't know, but we can't know. It's just the kind of beings we were. If, the, if we were sent here to understand, we wouldn't have been required to forget everything we knew before we took the final test, right? So we're here in a life where we're to be tested and to live by faith. And, and I'll talk about faith more if you want, but faith is is the willingness to be open to guidance. And, you know, we're not solving all of these questions um, with some kind of a definitive answer that says, I've now answered the question, move on. I'm very critical, by the way, of the effort that the church has made um, on, the, on this issue and on others. I think they're very incomplete. In some ways, they're misleading, not intentionally so, but just by by the kind of academic exercise that they were engaged in and the kind of people they had working on the project. Um, I'm an attorney. I, I know about delivery of information, and I tell my I tell my clients and witnesses that I prepare for trial. There's telling the story, and then there's simply reciting facts. You've got to tell the story, but telling the story means you put things into context so that people can understand where you're coming from and what's happening. Um, the the bottom line is to tell this kind of a story without also um, disclosing, you know, that Brigham Young had a, a great deal of, of concern about Native American slavery, that there were very few blacks in the territory, <laughs> that, um, you know, I could go on and on, but I, I just think that their treatment is so dry and incomplete. I'm just very critical of it. And, and I, my fear is that they're going to do more harm by trying to answer John DeLynn than they are good by letting these kinds of issues be held really by more complete study and, and, uh, having people who have to struggle. I mean, there's something in the struggle to gain knowledge so that one can gain one's own perspective. And, you know, the problem with what they've done is it's kind of like, well, here's the answer. Well, it isn't the answer, and it's not even a partial answer. And um, I know the people who did these had good intentions. I just I just think that they're a, a total failure in what they intended, in, intended to do from what it appears they intended to do, which was to 
simply appear to be honest and fully disclose um, with it, but you know they've forgotten the context. In terms of trusting the prophets, look, the bottom line is is that um, when a prophet tells you that he's got um, inspiration from God and it's within the context of what God has asked him to do, we've taken a covenant to obey what they ask us to do. I'm not aware of a prophet ever saying you have to believe X, Y, and Z, except for basic fundamentals, for instance, for example, for a, a temple interview, which can be done in less than three minutes if you're good at it. So, you know, what, we, what we're expected to believe with, with the kind of generality that we're expected to believe, it leaves a great deal open. Everything else is is up for a further light and knowledge, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not I'm not bothered by the fact that prophets have erred in the past. I think that anybody who is familiar with scripture ought to be aware that prophets have erred in the past. I've never understood scriptural fundamentalists who who believe in inerrance in the inerrancy of, of scripture. To me, it's just the most ludicrous belief in the world. Um, but I suppose we all start out with that kind of a naive view, and then when we study and learn, we find out that, you know, anything that humans touch isn't going to be inerrant. Um, as far as, you know, what kind of authority do they actually have? They have only the authority we give them and that we recognize. We don't, we don't give prophets authority over us because they're so intelligent they know all the answers. We don't give prophets authority over us because they're the best people on earth and they, therefore they have moral authority over us. We don't give prophets authority because everything they say has already been stated to them by God and they're just repeating what he said. All of those notions are ludicrous. And yet one or other of those assumptions is underlying the question that you're asking. Well, don't I, ha if I believe that, that everything that a prophet is saying is, is being dictated to him by God, if I give up that belief, how can I trust in the, in the prophet? The fact is, is that we're covenant bound to recognize the prophet when he is speaking and asking us to do things. And we're duty-bound to accept as coming from God um, what is accepted by the church by common consent of Scripture. That's happened from time to time. And even when it's accepted as Scripture, as you know, it's open to a wide range of interpretation and understanding. So what we're working with when we're working with prophets is people who are saying essentially to us, you have taken by covenant to do certain things that we ask you to do within this scope. We're not bound to believe any particular thing um, in terms of, you know, Brigham Young believed in the Adam-God theorem, not bound to believe in that. President Benson believed that um, liberals were, were not worthy of the gospel. We don't have to believe in that. Orson Pratt believed that God knew everything and there was nothing more for him to learn. We're not bound to believe in that. Brigham Young believed that God was growing in knowledge and that there was a whole realm of truth that he hadn't quite accessed yet. We don't have to believe in that. Um, Brigham Young um, was, you know, was a racist along with everybody else in his times. Though I, I think it can be definitively stated that Brigham Young solidified the doctrine with respect to blacks when he received a letter from a, a member in South Carolina, you know, ex essentially expressing his outrage that a high priest in the church would marry a black woman. And Brigham Young essentially agreed with him. And it was only after the, the letter uh, that Brigham Young solidified his approach to blacks and the priesthood. Um, and then I think we can account for the continued force of the practice by the fact that nobody had the guts to simply stand up and say, well, this is wrong, we shouldn't do it. Though most people are probably not aware, in the 1960s, um, there were votes taken about whether to end the practice. David O. McKay, the prophet, 
was in favor of it. I mean, this is an interesting situation because it shows the actual dynamic at work. But the revelations say that, that the 12 must be unanimous in what they do. And there were several holdouts um, that would not agree. I think the last holdout, um, at least at that time, was Harold B. Lee, who later became prophet and yet never addressed the issue. Um, and so what had to happen is for a group of men to come along who would unanimously agree and I can see the motive of those who, who were, who questioned because essentially the approach was there had to be some reason for this. I don't know what it is, but until I'm clear from God that there's not some reason for it, I'm not going to agree to end it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I'm not faulting them in terms of their, you know, they just wanted to make sure because there had been so many theories, I think, suggested. One of the problems we have, and I think we ought to recognize that it's a problem, is that it's the nature of almost all men to surround themselves with people who agree with them already. Non-Mormons do it, anti-Mormons do it, um, church leaders do it. And it's this kind of like-mindedness, this kind of like-mind-think, where everybody simply agrees with us and we avoid people who don't, that it uh, is the real problem. Um, but it's not a problem just for Mormons or just for church leaders. It's a human problem. It's just the way we are. We don't like people to show us that we're wrong or incomplete. Um, it feels rotten to be wrong and to feel like you've, you've probably gotten something that's really important just wrong and you've screwed up. So it's just a human problem that we're dealing with. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, um, when it comes to, I'll tell you a story because I, I have a very close heart to this issue. Well, when I was in Milan on my mission, I was approached by a woman who was from Ethiopia. Her country had been undergoing an un a civil war. She was there, and she walked up to us. This is the only time this ever happened to me in my entire life. But we were at a bus stop, and she walked up to us and said, You are ministers of God, aren't you? And I turned to her and said, Yes, we are. She said, I saw you last night in, in a dream. Would you teach me? And so we began to teach her. <laughs> she was anxious to be baptized, but she had a little boy named Simone. That wasn't his real name. It's what we called him. And we called her Mary. Her real name was Kudusan Mebratu. Um, but everybody in the branch called her Mary, and they loved her. And because she had approached us and asked us, we were able to teach her. Um, I was on my mission um, in Milano in 1979 in the spring. Um, I had a real issue. I, I refused to consider having her be baptized and continue in the gospel unless she knew about our practice of excluding blacks from the priesthood because her little boy Simone was not going to be able to hold the priesthood. So I had fasted, I had prayed, and I had set a date to go over and tell her about it. And literally, as I was walking out the door of my apartment, I got a call from one of the APs. Um, both of the APs had previously been with me in the LTM, and I knew them very well. And, and uh, one called and said, uh, Elder Osler, don't tell Mary the blacks can't hold the priesthood because we got a communique from Salt Lake this morning saying they can and I was incensed. I said, look, this is not funny. This is the worst joke I've ever had. I'm, I'm, my heart is aching over this. My heart is aching for her. It's aching for Simone. And, and I'm just telling you flat out, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. <laughs> he said, just, I argued with him for a while. He said, well, just hold it. So we went and got my, my mission president, John R. Halliday, and put him on the phone. And there's one thing I knew about President Halliday is that's that he was never going to joke around. And, uh, he said, Elder Osler, we received a wire from Salt Lake this morning telling us that all worthy young men can have the priesthood, so don't tell her that they can't. Well, we already had the appointment set, so I went over and I said, Mary, until this morning, or until last night, blacks in our church couldn't hold the priesthood. And she was kind of, she kind of didn't understand it, so I explained it. I said, people who have dark skin like you can't, couldn't hold the priesthood 
but we've changed that. And she looked at me and very innocently said, did you change that just for me? And I answered yes, because I believed it then, I believe it now. <laughs> I'm just telling you flat out. So I have a, I, this is a very personal and intimate issue for me. And because of the way it transpired for me, failing to see God's hand in it would be impossible for me. Um, I loved her then, I love her now, and I'm so grateful that as I was walking out the door, God saw fit to relieve me of that burden. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm just delighted that, you know, remember what happened is that God finally was able to get through to people through revelation, including the 12. It's my belief that God is talking to us all the time, trying to get through to us, to get us to, to look around and see the people around us that we can serve. In the things that I've, I've published online and in my testimony, I tell this, the experience that I had of a young woman. I was a sophomore at the time. Uh, frankly, I was in somewhat of a faith crisis because when I was going through this evolution stuff and, um, she said we were going to go into a, an assembly at the old Jordan High School, which is where Jordan Commons in Salt Lake is now. And she sat down by me and for some strange reason, without thinking, I turned to her and said, this is going to sound strange. God has a message for you. He wants you to stop thinking about suicide. And her jaw dropped agape and she looked at me and just said, how did you know? <laughs> And I told her very honestly, I had no clue how I knew. I just knew. And um, she explained that she had an entire bottle of sleeping pills that she was going to go home right after the assembly and, and take it. And so based upon my experiences, I mean, you know, this kind of stuff is very real. For me, it's a matter of life and death. And God breaks through to us now and then when we're listening and when he can finally get through to us. But if I had thought about it, if I had hesitated to say, is this rational? If I had hesitated to say, whoa. How could I possibly know this? She probably would have died. And so, you know, I've learned that when the pure intelligence is flowing into me to go with it and know what it is and trust it. And, and, you know, there, there have been a very few times when it, you know, I'm still left wondering, well, you told me to do this. I don't see what for, but I can't tell you the number of times where I've just trusted it and, and miracles have happened. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of experience that I think God is waiting for us to all kind of wait for a breakthrough. And I just think he wasn't able to get through to those who held notions that were that disallowed them to, to hear his voice up until that time. So that's my Excellent. experience. <laughs> no, that's really good. And I and I want to push a little bit here on kind of relating it to a present day issue. And and if you want, we'll just cut this section out if it's not an appropriate question for you to want to try and tackle. But the LGBT issue and Looking at how, for instance, we've got leaders in the last week or so who have said, hey, it's a doctrine, it's never going to change. And yet, looking back on this race issue, for instance, we had Elder McConkie who would have said the same thing two weeks earlier, and he stands up and says, forget anything I've ever said, forget anything Brigham Young's ever said, new revelation has come, and, and it's time to put our old th views behind us. And in the LGBT issue is one that I, I feel like, and I'm not, I'm not here to say I demand a change or that I, I think it has to change. Rather, I've been one who sat back and said, I'm not going to come down one way or the other. I'm going to just wait and see what happens. But it feels like there's kind of this fight from both sides. Many are seeing this, the race issue and the priesthood revelation of 1978 and, and in some ways making it similar to the LGBT issue and Again, that other similarity being that we've kind of put our foot down here and said this is a doctrine, this will never change. Maybe not necessarily this topic if you don't want to, you know, touch this topic, but just generally speaking, is it safe to say that, that the doctrines we have today won't change or is there always room for further light and knowledge? 
Well, doctrines can change for a number of reasons. Revelation, capitulation, um, simple lack of, of willingness to abide by something. So the bottom line that I'm going to tell you is that we don't know if they will change. Um, but if they do, it may not be for reasons that are, are moving us forward. Let me give you my approach to this issue. First of all, I think that many in the uh, and I don't, you know, first of all, there's a, lot, a, a large range. Just saying that a person is gay is really naive, in my opinion. There's an entire range of, on which people fit, all the way from being totally committed as a homosexual to being bi, to being kind of, to being, well, I, I guess if I were exposed to this stuff long enough, I, I could come to like it. Um, to those who just say, oh, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of, which is, by the way, what I said when I first learned about about sexual intercourse when I was a kid. I just said, you know, that there's no way my parents would ever do that. It was just unbelievable to me. Um, I've, I've changed my mind since then. I don't mind telling you. But I think that many in, in that are, are gay or lesbian, bisexual, are very vulnerable in our society. I think that they... Um, I have many friends that are, you know, or somewhere on that gay spectrum or lesbian spectrum, and my heart goes out to them. They're... They're oftentimes um, very vulnerable, and, and some of them are, you know, how, how do I say this? Those who are the classic effeminates, <laughs> okay? Not all of them are, and I don't mean to simply put everybody, but I'm thinking of those who who would likely be bullied in certain circumstances because they're so vulnerable. I think we've got to go out of our way to protect them, to recognize that um, we have to be very sensitive to their needs to make sure that they are not in any way picked upon and, and to stand up for their rights um, and to love them and, and maybe to show an extra measure of love. Um, with respect to gay marriage, I, I however, don't... I, I think that they're, what's actually happening with gay marriage is that they want us to accept homosexual relations as on par with heterosexual relations, and they're not. Homosexual relations in and of themselves cannot sustain a civilization, a culture, or humankind, and that has to be very clear. They're not on par. And I believe that every every young child, um, you know, the ideal situation would be to have a mother and a father in a home. I, I did. I had that benefit. Um, I was blessed in that way. But I think having a father and a mother in a home is something the government ought to promote. And it ought to be not merely seen as an ideal, but a, a reality that we can actually accomplish. Um, I also believe that the government has no business being involved in marriage at all. Marriage began as a religious sacrament. Um, civil marriage began when there was a break with the church and uh, marriages were done in England outside of, of religious authority. Um, they began, they, they used the same word for it, marriage, but that's not what it is at all in my view. In my view, civil governments have only civil authority and can only do civil um, unions. They don't have authority to do a marriage. And the relationship between marriage and Whatever it is that a justice of the peace is going to do has become so intimate in our culture that it's just like a religious right. And I'm personally offended when anybody involved in the government becomes involved in a religious right or anything that looks like it. I just, in my view, that's a violation of the First Amendment separation. And so I'm for civil unions. I'm totally against gay marriage because I think what's really happening is an agenda to say you have to accept homosexual conduct, not homosexual status, as being morally appropriate and being morally as appropriate as a heterosexual relationship. And I don't accept that. Um, and I don't think that they, that our 
I don't think our society has the same interest in promoting homosexual um, relations as as it does heterosexual relations, precisely because um, the well-being of a society depends on heterosexual relations. And the primary purpose of marriage in terms of the civil interest in marriage has always been to protect the children. That's not what the religious sacrament was about, but it is about what um, the civil interest in marriage was, is to make sure the children were taken care of. And I think that... To, with respect to whether or not um, gay people ought to have children and so forth, um, you, you know, again, having both a mother and a father role models in both sexes is important. Um, I'm very suspicious of studies that have been done to date. Almost all of them have been done by by gay lesbian advocates, and I I just distrust them. And I think that until we have long-term longitudinal studies, we're not really going to have good evidence one way or the other. But I think we're doing a real disservice to our culture to simply assume that um, gay relationships are on par with heterosexual relationships. And I, and I know that's going to upset a lot of people, but that's the way I feel. Um, on the other hand, I'm for civil unions. I think that a committed relationship is better than um, a relationship that is, that, uh, you know, where everybody is, is uh, out with everybody else every other night. Um, the the kind of of uh, commitment that comes with the civil union or or if you want to call it a marriage is superior to to people who are uncommitted and simply want to you know have sex seriatim with as many people as they can um, and so I laud those who want to commit to a, sing, a single person in their life because I believe that brings stability I believe that it brings additional chances to learn to love and I I bring I believe that it's morally superior to, um, you know, a relationship that doesn't have that kind of commitment in it. Um, that doesn't put it on par with a heterosexual relationship in my mind, but it is morally superior to um, a relationship that lacks that kind of a commitment. And so to that extent, I think our culture has an interest in promoting civil unions. And, but I, And look at, this is the way I see it. I'm an attorney. I could draft an agreement. I believe I could give rights that are the equivalent of marriage through contracts and or through civil unions, and that would give them everything that they otherwise would have. But that's not good enough. The reason it's not good enough is you have to accept me and my conduct as being morally okay. You cannot say that what I'm doing is morally wrong. And yet that's exactly what distinguishes this issue from the issue of, of um, a white person marrying a black person. My niece is married to a, a black from, man from Curacao. He's one of the finest men I know. I have no... No objection to that kind of a relationship at all. But if we are promoting um, immoral conduct, there's a different element in these relationships that doesn't exist in, in uh, interracial relationships. And so they're not really, I mean, they're apples and oranges. I know that the people in the um, gay-lesbian community would like to make them the same kind of a, a th of a relationship. So the arguments for one work for the other. But what they're leaving out is that there's a, a moral element to homosexual conduct that there doesn't exist with respect to interracial couples. And so they're not on par for me. There's, the argument doesn't fully go through. On the other hand, because I'm for civil unions and I believe that, that committed relationships are superior to non-committed relationships, I think we ought to support that kind of commitment. 
Gotcha. No, and I think in some ways that strikes kind of a balance between the extremes on both sides. I And I want to just push a little bit more on this issue, and I want to kind of take it the way you're defining it. So if civil unions between, you know, gay couples who are committed to each other is something that we say, hey, this is this is a positive thing to have um, as opposed to the alternate of not having them, and that marriage is a religious right that, you know, certainly – um, allows two committed, you know, heterosexual people to enter into that religious observance, that religious covenant. Do you see room in the church then going forward? I'm not asking, I'm not saying, do you want to have a change or I, I don't want to, again, throw you under the bus and have you say something that, that would be inappropriate to say. I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that you're, you're fighting for it or you're asking for it or it should happen, but rather do you see room that, you know, a hundred years from now we find a way to say, look, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, families that are in the, the celestial kingdom will only be families that are headed up by a man and a woman. But yet there's still room in the church for people to participate at least at some level more than maybe what's going on today. Um, if they're, if they're a gay couple. Um, yeah, I can see that happening. I mean, none of us really knows. Um, but I can see that in the effort to let them know that they're fully accepted and love as who and what they are that we open our doors to them. Now, personally, I'm a, a bit uncomfortable if two guys are, are holding hands, and I, I still cringe every time I see guys kiss. It just it may be built into me. I don't know. Maybe it's my culture, but that's the way that it is. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. I think there are a lot of people who feel the same way, and they're, they're just too chicken to say it. Um, but I've already said that I think committed relationships are better than committed relationships, and so I can see us making room and saying, look, um, not the Melchizedek priesthood, but why not the Aaronic priesthood? Um, or not the Melchizedek priesthood and Aaronic priesthood, but there's no reason that you can't have callings in the church to provide service. Um, and if, you know, if you want to sit with your, um, you know, with the person in, with whom you're in union with, great. We'll honor that. Um, maybe over time that will change. Um, in this culture, given the, you know, the way people react who are like me, it's like, whoa, that's, it's not really foreign to my experience. Once you begin to engage in actual homosexual relationship conduct, for instance, expressing affection for each other, um, that kind, there's a moral quality to that in the scriptures and, and other places. And, you know, frankly, um, it's this moral assessment. We shouldn't simply say, oh, um, you know, being homosexual is like being black, and it is. If you have no choice about it, and you're simply born gay, you have no choice about that. The choice is whether you take your pants off. And we have the same standard for both heterosexuals and, and homosexuals. You say, oh, well, you know, that it's not the same because you at least have the potential for getting married. We'll, we'll tell that to a 50-year-old man or woman who's not married and, and has no prospect for marriage. Really, for them, it's no different. Should we change the rules for them, too, and say, oh, look... We know that the likelihood that you're actually going to be able to get married is so remote that for all pragmatic purposes, it's just like being gay. So go for it. We'll change the rules for you. And so we have one rule for heterosexuals and another rule for homosexuals. That just seems so inconsistent to me that we ought not go there. That's how I feel about it. No, no, no. I, I think that's good. And I appreciate your words there. And I, I, like I said, I think you struck a fair balance between the two extremes. I, uh, I want to ask you, you mentioned scripture a moment ago. I want to ask you about how you define scripture and, and maybe a little bit of background. It's, it's an issue that I've been kind of wondering about a lot lately in the sense that within Mormonism, within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
we we have scripture as kind of our foundation. We realize scripture is not perfect. We realize it may not have been translated or transmitted, you know, perfectly and that there may be errors and things in the text, but yet we still use it as the foundation to measure everything else by. So if a pro, if a prophet of the church says something, we're asked by other prophets that to to look at those words, those quotes and measure them against those uh those that canon, that scripture that we have. Other organizations, I'll just use the Community of Christ as an example. The Community of Christ uh, is a little more liberal in their view of Scripture. They they have totally thrown historicity out the window and simply said, look, Scripture is a sacred uh, writings in a community that draws us closer to Christ. Whether they're historically true or not is irrelevant. And I often find in Mormonism that members of the church who are having a discussion about a topic will will use Scripture's as kind of like the end-all, be-all to defend a point. And then I see other members of the church who say, yeah, you know, some of these, you know, even Brigham Young said that some scripture is from God, some's from the devil, some's from man. How do you kind of navigate what scripture is, what it can be counted on to do for us, and maybe what its role is within our community? Well, we actually have a hierarchy of authority. First of all, scriptures were easily defined as those writings which are accepted by common consent by a vote of the saints. As scripture. That's what scripture is. Um, but that's not the end of the discussion. There's also a hierarchy of authority. Official first presidency statements would be next in their, um, authority to, um, instruct us. Next would be, um, and maybe the statements of Joseph Smith, um, and his writings and so forth are actually greater in authority than first presidency statements. Joseph Smith is the founding prophet. His writings, his unpublished revelations, for instance, would, I would put those higher than um, the first presidency statements, um, and and I include in first presidency statements and on that same level the lectures on faith because that was their attempt to state what they believed at the time. It was a statement of of uh, the um, communal belief of the saints. And, and those were one scripture and were taken out of the. Well, yeah. In fact, correct? in doctrine and covenants, the lectures on faith were the doctrine. And the revelations that were given in Joseph Smith were the covenants. <laughs> and so the doctrine of the church was the lectures on faith. Um, you know, they've been perhaps surpassed in some respects by further light knowledge. But let me just tell you, I have the highest respect for the lectures on faith to the extent that they clearly teach about the relationship of unity of the members of the Godhead as a relationship into which we've been invited and through which we will become deified in every respect that every member of the Godhead is. That's very advanced. It's not, it's not like, oh, Joseph Smith later came up with deification and he later only recognized that these were separate beings. Those kind of approaches to the lectures on faith don't make sense of them in my view. Um, and in fact, um, I think it could be demonstrated that the King Follett discourse is a further discussion of an amplification of the lectures on faith because what Joseph Smith is doing is amplifying the notion that, um, we can become everything that God is. And and he actually, there are several places where he's quoting the lectures or paraphrasing the lectures in his King Follett discourse. And so, in my view, the, the you know, I, I put the lectures on faith right up with every first presidency statement. Um, after that would be the statements of prophets at, at uh, official meetings, official statements. Um, and then after that would be talks at, at uh, general conference. After that would be you know, statements by bishops and so forth. But we have this hierarchy of authority, and that's how we actually operate. Um, you know, when you quote Brigham Young and say, well, even he said this, what you're saying is, well, there's some authority for the 
proposition that not all scripture is, is true. Why do we give adherence to scripture? And the answer is twofold. The first is that we believe God knows more than we do. And if God is speaking, we ought to listen. And so when God is giving a revelation, that means that that revelation takes precedence. It has precedence over human knowledge. It's a disclosure from somebody who knows everything. And we would be foolish not to give it precedence. That's why we give it precedence. We also give it precedence because we agreed that these particular writings are the foundation for our community. They're like a constitution. And they're as general as a constitution in a lot of ways as well. I mean, you've got to work out what they mean. But they are foundational. You cannot violate scripture in the sense that if God has disclosed something, then you've got to have some way of working it through to show that you're acting consistently with it. So, for instance, let's take um, something that's done in the Old Testament that's been superseded, like sacrifices. The Christian explanation for that was sacrifices are done away because of Jesus Christ to further revelation. Um, or like um, in the Book of Mormon, which knows nothing of the three degrees of glory. Well, that's amplified by DNC 76, where we talk about the three degrees of glory. So you can add to Scripture. You can clarify Scripture. But you have to do essentially what the Supreme Court does with the Constitution. You've got to, you've got to give it a living meaning in terms of the actual problems that the community um, has and, and that we live. And so our Scriptures become like the Torah. The Torah, remember, is the law. The law is what, what shapes, defines, and, and gives... Um, pragmatic workability to a culture. And so our scriptures work like that for us. They certainly work like that in, in, in Islam, for instance, where the Sharia law is precisely the law. They're saying, you know, the, the, the Quran for us and the, the teachings of those who have expostulated the Quran are the foundation of our community. That's what they want. Well, in, in the community that was first established, the revelations that defined the united order and that defined what it meant to have all things in common, that was the law. That was their covenant. And by a covenant, what they said is we've accepted by contract that we're bound by these revelations as the means of ordering our community. And so the scriptures are there to order our community. They're the foundation. So two reasons. God knows more than we do. And two, we're bound by covenant to accept them as the foundation for our community. Love it. Love it. I wanted to ask you, and I want to kind of work towards wrapping up here, maybe just a couple of other questions. The uh, the idea of those out there who are struggling, just as you pointed out when you were a teenager and kind of went down this this road of discovering all this information that wasn't being spoken about kind of in the, the simple story we tell in, in the faith struggle that ensued from that. There are lots of members out there because of the Internet, because of this age of information that are discovering all these same stories and pieces of information that they had never heard about their entire time growing up. Or when they did hear about them, somebody would come along and say, oh, that's just anti-Mormon propaganda. And obviously that even makes it harder when you finally discover that those things are true. Any thoughts for those who are having a hard time where maybe what they could do to help turn it around or a way to kind of frame the struggle or even places that that would be helpful to go to and things that they could do that we might might at least give them some comfort as they kind of wade through all of this? Sure. I'd ask them to be patient and recognize their their epistemic limitations in assessing the issues that they're dealing with. Um, for instance, I know a lot of people who are very troubled by polygamy. Um, and when it comes to polygamy, I think most, almost everybody I run into has a vast misimpression about what was actually done. I mean, I've had people actually tell me that Joseph Smith was out there having sex with 14-year-olds. Well, I've assessed, I've assessed every single document that has to do with it. I'm telling you, it's almost virtually certain he did not. <laughs> um, they're out there telling me he was having sex with other men's wives. 
I think that Brian Hell's argument to the contrary is persuasive. Um, and I've looked at it myself. Um, I've, you know, I, I'm looking right now at the evidence. I think that when Emma gave her consent, it changed the nature of the relationship that Joseph Smith had with his plural wives. I think that's why he remarried some that he previously married because it really was a change. And DNC 132 would support the view that where a woman gives her consent, the nature of the relationship is a different one than where she doesn't give her consent. I don't think we've read DNC 132 very carefully. I wish I had time to go through it. But in essence, there are situations where God commands a person to take a plural wife. Those are different than when a man desires to take a plural wife, which are different from the situation where a woman consents to the plural wife. And, and DNC 132 is addressing all of those. And you have to put it back into the context of the crisis that Joseph Smith was going through with Emma and ask why, why was this an answer to Emma at the time? What is it that DNC 132 um, functioned to answer her question in such a way that Hiram thought all she had to do was read the revelation and her and her issues would be assuaged. We know that they weren't, but at least Hiram Smith, who's a pretty bright guy, thought that would be the case. <laughs> Joseph Smith knew her better. But the bottom line is, is that um, they've made decisions about their eternal exaltation based upon things they know very little about and that are still being assessed. Now, let me be up front, for instance, with Fanny Alger, what occurred there? Well, I think there's a way of reading it to say what happened is that um, um, Emma saw the sealing ceremony that was taking place in the barn that was being conducted by Mosiah Hancock, and that set her off. There's a way of, of reading it to say she saw a sexual transaction between Joseph Smith and Fanny Alger in the barn. And, you know, trying to make sense of all of the evidence is very challenging. Um, but the, the fact, and this is a fact, that the, all of the DNA evidence that we have to date um, – disproves every single claim of a, of a child of a plural marriage. And, you know, there are a few that, that remain out there. Um, Josephine Lyon comes to mind, but even in that case, it's extremely unlikely that she's Joseph Smith's um, child. We can't say definitively because um, we don't have the, you know, the DNA doesn't work that way for females. I'm not going to go into the science of it, but it just doesn't. Um, the empty DNA doesn't. You know, it's not available in term when you're dealing with females. But Joseph Smith had at least four mutations that were kind of unique to his family, and none of the four are present in her DNA, which makes it very unlikely that she is. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is it that, you know, if Joseph Smith was such a lech, and that, you know, he's taking advantage of so many women. I mean, you know, some people have had the notion, oh, there was an abortion clinic in, in Nauvoo. I think anybody who looks into that and looks at the evidence is going to find out that that's not merely a, a wives' tale. That's a vicious rumor of gossip that is just false. Um, you know, but it would really take time to look at all the evidence and assess it as to why I've come to these conclusions. Um, I think that, for instance, Sarah Pratt um, had an adulterous relationship and that she took it out on Joseph Smith. Um, I think that the laws, I think that, that uh, you know, when you're talking about those who actually led to Joseph Smith's death, that there's there's very strong evidence um, that is contemporary, contemporaneous, um, very close in time, suggesting that what happened there was that um, um, the you know the sister law came and wanted to be sold to Joseph Smith and he refused her, <laughs> and so they were not happy. But this all takes a lot of explanation. You know, um, Brian Hells has gone through this at some length in his three volumes. I. I was blessed to be able to see kind of a pre-publication copy and go through it, but I'm familiar with all of the underlying documents, um, and 
you know, I've looked at the evidence myself and I had a chance to look at much of the evidence even before Don Bradley dug some of it up because I had access to the archives. Um, this goes way back, but when, you know, Stephen Christensen was looking into the Salamander letter, I was working with Ron Walker and I gained access to a number of things that otherwise there wouldn't have been access to. And so, um, and when I say otherwise have access to it, it was just a means of protecting documents that were easily destroyed just by handling them. Um, and they had to be preserved for review by competent, by people who were scholars and who um, had undertaken a, a, essentially an oath to protect the document while they were viewing it. And that's, that's, you know, every archive does that. So, um, when it comes down to those kind of things, my, my advice is be patient. Um, there's a lot you don't know and, and a lot you can't know. So, you know, look at your total totality of your experience and ask yourself what makes the both, what makes the most sense of the totality of my experience in terms of assessing the truth. And remember that you're not dead from the neck down. That is not everything is simply an academic question. Um, I just don't, you know, there's a lot science can't explain even. I, I think the mind, right, as we know it now, consciousness has not been very well explained by science or by neurophysiology. And so, you know, I, I'm a philosophy guy, and, and I'm real used to confronting questions where I simply have to say, there are so many views on this, it, it, it's very difficult for me to assess which one I, I think is, is accurate. There are some that I think may be accurate, and I have reasons for believing they're accurate, but I wouldn't bet my life on them. And so I'm, you know, I suggest that you not bet your life on something where you don't really have the ability to assess the evidence, and that includes almost everybody for every issue. I mean, how many people really have the ability to assess the evidence on the Book of Abraham, for instance? Um, you know, how many people really know the relationship between the Egyptian documents that existed at the time and the Jewish pseudepigrapha, and what relationship there would be with um, that related to Abraham, and, and how the Egyptians who were dealing with with the interface between Abraham and um, the, you know, both the Jewish pseudepigrapha and the Egyptian documents, how did they interpret those? How did they use them? Turns out that um, they actually did identify Osiris on on the beer, um, like Joseph Smith does. In fact, me number one with Abraham. Turns out that the Horus Hawk is in fact identified with an angel. Um, it it turns out that. The story that's told in, in the book of Abraham is, is extremely similar to the apocalypse of Abraham that comes from about the same period as the papyrus and which apparently relied on chapter 125 of the book of the dead for, for some of its story and is actually explaining what the text looks like. That is the facsimile or, or what would be from chapter 125 of the book of the dead. And, and why is that? How do we explain the fact that there's this close correspondence? So we have all these issues and when it comes right down to it, um, you know, I, I've done I, I, I rarely run into a person who's spent as much time looking at the issues as I have, but it, it's not hard to find people who've spent more time looking at particular issues than I have. And, and so, in my view, you know, if the experience I had at the age of 14 were the last spiritual experience I had, I'd feel, you know, I wouldn't feel very good about it, and it's not. But for me, the totality of my experiences, I know what the answer has been. I know who is responding to my prayer. And so when I approach the issues, the issue for me is, given the totality of my experience, how do I make sense of this? And if they decide that Mormonism just isn't going to work for them, then I wish them the best. Um, but I wish they'd be very patient in coming to that conclusion and very humble about what they think they know. Because when I discuss these kinds of issues with people, I find out that they there's a vast amount, not, not only do they not know, they have a vast amount of misinformation 
and they just, you know, they really don't know what they're talking about for the most part. And they, even when they know what they're talking about, it's a very narrow issue that they know a lot about. And so, um, you know, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is my recommendation. Excellent, excellent. Um, where can people find more of your work, Blake? Well, I have a website, blakehostler.com, where you can find the papers that I've published, the, uh, you know, the basic recordings of, of various places where I've spoken. Um, you can find links to the books that I've written and, uh, should be able to find just about everybody there or everything there. Um, so if they want to go there and, and find out more, I'd, I'd be delighted. That's why I put it up. Wonderful. So for the listeners, blakeosler.com, uh, B-L-A-K-E-S or, oh, I'm sorry, B-L-A-K-E-O-S-T-L-E-R.com. Blake, thank you for being on. I just appreciate it so much. I think that it's good for those who are having a hard time in their faith journey to just hear somebody who's spent as much time as you have kind of looking at all these issues in depth and kind of really putting some deep thought into how you frame different issues and different perspectives of, of, parts and pieces within our faith to to kind of hear how another does that so thank you so much for being on today delighted to do it um, all the best to you Taking out my issues never healed the 